All right, let's dismiss the children to go out to a children's church at this time. So uh, if you're comfortable with doing that, Miss Janine has got uh, all your kids covered for this time. And uh, the rest of us who are young at heart, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. To start with, we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 20. Once again, if you need the bulletin, it has the outline in it so that you can write... uh, that as we go along through the message today. When I was a child, my parents had a a Reader's Digest children's Bible uh, that they purchased and kept it laying around the house and it had pictures in it and that was great for me, right? That's how I still like to read books, books that have pictures in them. But uh, as I grew older and began to understand, uh, Reader's Digest really stopped at the crucifixion. And I was like, well, wait a minute, there's more to the story. And uh, they forgot the resurrection. And then as they became older, I understood, well, not only did they forget the resurrection, they forgot the church. They forgot that, we have, that we're going to have a resurrection. And they forgot the return of the Lord. And I think a lot of people don't understand what happened to Jesus after his death. And today, I would like to answer that question. Obviously, we're celebrating Easter, which is his resurrection. But did you know that there are seven things that the New Testament tells us that Jesus Christ is presently doing. Can you think of any of them? Why don't you see if you can guess what they are? What is Jesus doing today? All right, advocating on our behalf. We'll explain what that is. That's one of the seven. Anything else? All right, preparing a place for us. So we've got two of the seven. Are we going to get a passing grade? (laughs) Probably not. All right. All right, interceding for us or praying for us. Good, we're we're almost at 50%. Anything else? Calls us his own, all right? And so we'll give you half credit for that, Tony. So let's go ahead and look at this now. Uh, You are in Matthew 28 for our scripture reading, but I want us to go down to the end of the chapter, and you'll find out what Jesus Christ is expecting us to do um, because of his present actions. So here's the big idea today. If you're here and you don't believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, well, we want you to walk away from here today having put your trust in him. So believe in what Jesus did for you, that he died on the cross, he was buried, he rose again. And a living Jesus can save you if you'll trust him by calling upon him. Then identify with his church and serve others. So life is not about ourselves; it's about other people. Then thank him for praying for you, confess your sins, and anticipate your heavenly home at his coming. So that's a lot to take in, but you'll see that several more times during the message. All right, here's the first thing 
that Jesus Christ is doing. Number one, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, he is exercising authority, exercising authority. So we read in verses 18 through 20, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Well, there's really two participles that function as verbs here. Uh, would be make disciples, all right? And then the second one is and lo. It's an interjection, but it's a participial which carries the verb. Stop and think about this. Gaze upon this fact. Open your eyes wide. I've just commissioned you. I've invested authority in you to go into all the world. But... I'm always with you as you go. I want you to know that. And so he's exercising authority, and he gave that authority to you and to me as Christians. And so in your outline there, I have authority for service and Christian growth. And you can say, well, where do we get Christian growth in this? Well, teaching them to obey all things whatsoever I've commanded you. Uh, Being a disciple of Jesus means we follow his disciplines. We obey him. And we grow into his likeness as we become more like him. And it takes his special authority as he exercises that into our life to make us become like him. And so he's exercising that authority in our life. You know, we do not have to be a slave to any sin that is out there as a Christian because we are set free because Christ has given us his authority and set us free. And so he's exercising that authority. So then the application for you and for me today is this, that I will live under authority. This is what people want you to do, Christian. They want you to be consistent. They really want Christians to conform to their beliefs that they say. And you have the authority and the power to do that through your risen Lord Jesus. And so share that message. Live that message. And so that's the first thing that he's doing. He's exercising that authority. And this will develop as we go through the message. And so listen to some other verses here about this authority. It says here, uh, the power which he wrought or worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but in the world that is to come. So for us then, Christ must be seen as the one who is exercising uh, authority above all other names. Above any human government, above any other religious uh, teacher, above any other authority that you put in your life, even above the authority of Google or Siri or Alexa, all right? 
You take those for authority all the time. You follow their directions when you ask them to navigate, right? So listen, he's above all other names. All things are held together by Christ and they're governed by him. Listen to how Paul puts it to the believers in the city of Colossae. He says, For by Jesus were all things created that are in heaven and that are in the earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things. And by him all things consist, and he is the head of the body, the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. What does the word preeminence mean? One and only place in your life. This is how he's exercising authority today. He wants to be your one and only authority, that one voice that you listen to says here, all things by him consist. It means that every day, Christ, by the word of his power, is holding the universe together. Yes, through his natural laws that he set in place, the planetary laws, the laws of the universe, but by his creative authority every day, this world exists. You exist He thinks of you as an individual. He loves you. And so he is exercising that authority. Now, these verses in Colossians tell us the next thing about what Jesus Christ is currently doing. And that is that he is the head of his church. So the second thing, Jesus Christ is leading his church. So if you want to take your Bibles, let's go over to the book of Ephesians. So you can find that. It's in the New Testament. You go Galatians, then Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. This is what it says. And hath put all things under his feet, and given him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. So the church is his body. All right, now you have a body, right? And what runs it? Well, your little brain up here, all right? It's the head. It, it dictates everything else that goes on. I remember several years ago, my mother, mother-in-law made a, a funny observation uh, at the dinner table one day. She said, you know, as I was flying back into Sacramento, and I noticed all the cars on the highway she says, I was just watching all of them darting in and out at landing you know, as we were coming in for our landing. And she thought, I thought to myself, you know, that's just a little group of brains down there driving those cars and making them go wherever they want. Well, yeah, you were exercising that authority by your thoughts and telling your car where to go and how to scurry about town and so forth. And I just thought, wow, that's really weird. Mom, thanks for sharing. But, you know, it's so true. Uh, our mind and runs our life, the way we think, what we believe, what we like, what we don't like. And so Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Now, I understand we have many guests with us today. Thank you for being here. One thing you need to know about a Bible-believing church 
is that pastor's not in charge. The Lord Jesus is. The deacons are not in charge. Jesus Christ is in charge. The members are not in charge. Jesus Christ is in charge. We don't have a denominational structure above us where we have denominational headquarters. They're not in charge. We don't have bishops or cardinals or higher than that. Jesus Christ is the one who runs his church. Now, what do we mean by church and talking about this? So Christ is leading his church. So it says here, in giving him to be head over all things to the church. Well, Jesus dictates through the scriptures how the church is to be run. And so why are we having a Bible message? Well, we're told in the pastoral epistles, give attention to the reading of scriptures. So that's why we read uh, singing and making melody in your hearts. That's why we sing. Um, His house is to be a house of prayer. That's why we've had prayer. So all of the things that we do when we come together, they come from his direction, from his leadership. So he's leading, he's directing his church. So on your outline there, you have a leader. How many of you like to play follow the leader when you were a kid? All right. It was great until you wanted to be the leader and you found out you had to still be a follower. But Jesus Christ is the leader and we always should follow him. So um, let's make some applications to this then. So this relationship then, it's vital and organic. You know, not too many of you came in here today um, as the $6 million uh, bionic man and had changed out body parts. Uh, Believe me, I would have loved to have changed out my knees this week as I was uh, drilling into some concrete. It was only an inch and a half thick, but I found out how much resistance concrete has and how long it takes to get through that and then how sore your knees get after you've been down on the ground for a while. And So I tried to stand up and my son was like, are you okay? Do you need help? I'm like, thanks, but no, I'm not okay. (laughs) I would really like to change out my body parts right now. But we didn't come in here today and put on a new head. All right? So the church doesn't get to change who the leader is. It's vital. If you're not related to Christ, then you're not part of his body. You're not going to live eternally unless you have that vital, organic relationship with Christ like His body, the church, those who believe on him have that organic relationship. Just as your body cannot live without a human head, so you will not live spiritually without a spiritual authority over you. You have to place yourself under his authority. And so he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now that is an interesting phrase, firstborn from the dead. What does that mean? Well, just put it this way. He's the first one who came back from the dead never to die again. Which also assumes that there will be others that will have that same experience. But Jesus Christ is the firstborn. He's the first one. And so his resurrection then guarantees our eternal resurrection. So you need then to 
have that vital relationship with your Lord Jesus Christ. So in your outline, I will follow him by committing to his leadership. Now, what does that mean? Well, the church is not a human idea. It's not something that people in society got together and said, hey, this is a good idea. No, people didn't even think of it at all. Jesus announced it to his disciples that I will build my church. Church is his idea. So if you have a right relationship with Jesus, then you'll want to be in church. Now, church is his body. It's, it's a relationship with the other parts of the body. And so you need your hands to help your feet get shoes tied on them, right? You need your hands to help feed your stomach. So there's that interconnectivity, that interdependence in the human body. And so we need you. We, we are interdependent upon all of you. And so Christ then becomes the, the head of that body, and we will follow that by making church then a priority in our life. And I'm not talking about a club. I'm talking about the interaction becomes a priority in our life. The relationships with people become key to the way that we live our week. Who we talk to, who we encourage, who we pray for. Who we encourage and exhort to live for the Lord. Well, how does all of that happen? How does church life really begin? Well, that leads us to our third point. He's bestowing gifts to his church to get that kind of living done. So let's go to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, since you were in Ephesians 1, if you followed along. But Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8 says, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. So where is Jesus today? Well, he ascended to heaven. That's where he is. But he's not just sitting passively by in a rocking chair doing nothing. Okay? He's exercising authority in the world. He's leading his church, but he's also gifting his church. Every time someone becomes a new Christian, he gives that new Christian a spiritual gift. Listen to 1 Peter Chapter 4, uh, verses 9 and 10, uh, it says here that um, as each one has received a gift, so let him minister it to one another as a steward of the manifold grace of God. So a spiritual gift is a divine enablement to do spiritual work. Now, it, it's great. We, we served one another today. Many of you, thank you for your service in the pancake breakfast and whether you set it up, whether you took it down, whether you made the food and, and so forth, but can a pancake breakfast not be done by a non-spiritual group? It sure can. So what makes it different? Well, it's when you go about using your spiritual gift of service and not doing it in the strength of your own body or the wisdom of your own thinking, but serving 
one another, maybe you were in tune with there was a brother or sister there that had a need and something was a little heavy and you could sense it in their demeanor, their spirit today. And so you took time to minister spiritually. And so the breakfast just provided a context to do spiritual ministry. Now, those that have the gift of service, then you exercised your spiritual gift. Yes, you did. Thank you. And you're doing that to to the glory of God. But he gives us spiritual gifts uh, to serve him. And so he gave gifts unto men. And so listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11. Um, well, it just talks about here that Christ is the head of his body and how he gives a spiritual gift. But, you know, Jesus didn't leave what gift you receive to chance. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11, distributing as he wills. Meaning a sovereign God chooses what spiritual gift he gives to you. Now, we don't have time to explain this whole concept, but if you want to read what spiritual gifts are, they're found in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, uh, and a few other places in the New Testament. Uh, can be service, can be administration, can be teaching, can be gifts of compassion, mercy. Uh, but these are all needed. But he gives that supernatural or divine enablement so you as a believer can actually do spiritual work in the world today. Now, some of you have wonderful professions and you're very satisfied and fulfilled in what you do. I'm glad for you. But is that eternal? And see, what you do in church when you minister your spiritual gifts is you're investing in eternity. You're investing in people who will go into eternity with you. And you'll be the richer and more blessed for investing in one another. Using the spiritual gift and doing that in such a way that you recognize that it comes from God. So God uses you. Isn't that nice to know that God can use you? That's a wonderful thing. God can actually use you. So you have a purpose in life. So his power flowing through you. In no sense is a human undertaking. The gifts cannot be exercised until we have first, if, and I want you to turn to this passage, just go to Romans chapter 12 for just a second. I want to make this connection. I feel that this is vitally important. I was telling you that Romans 12 contains the list of spiritual gifts, but you know, you can't use those spiritual gifts unless you're obedient to Jesus. And being found like him. So verses 1 and 2 lay that foundation. It says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a what? Sacrifice. What's a sacrifice? Something that's dead. How can it be a living? Not an oxymoron. Right? Paul put it this way. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who gave himself for me. So your life becomes a venue for Jesus Christ to live his life through you. That's what a living sacrifice is. Um, Holy, acceptable unto God, which is your what? Reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world. What's the world? It's not the planet, 
It's not the people in the world. It's the value system. It's the wants, the desires of the world. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Then verse 3 starts talking about service. You know why many people don't get involved in service? Because they haven't surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ that we've already talked about. His headship. Then when you're surrendered, then God can use you in service, which is a reasonable thing to do with your life, to live for Jesus. And so the blanks in your outline, I have a gift, a spiritual gift, and that's a divine enablement to help you for spiritual service. Therefore, I will serve him by serving others. Serve him by serving others. Serve him by serving others. All right, now, all of this is energized by his prayer life. So action number four. He's interceding for us. Interceding means to pray. To go to the Father on your behalf. Have you ever asked somebody to run interference before for you before? Anybody? All right, that's what he's doing for us. He's, he's interceding. He's praying for us. Here's a wonderful thing about this. And this, so this is from Romans chapter 8, verse 34. So you're in chapter 12. Let's go back and look at verse 34 in chapter 8. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of the Father, who maketh intercession for us. Now, Simply put, Jesus is praying for you by name. Isn't that nice to know? He knows you as an individual person. He's not praying for us as a collective group, even though I'm sure he can do that. He's praying for you as an individual person. That's how much he thinks of you. Now, he's specifically making intercession for believers. It starts out by verse 34, who is he that condemneth? Well, that can be your own conscience. Man, I blew it. I'm not a good Christian. And then the devil likes to come to us and say, yeah, that's right. You really did blow it. You're not a good Christian at all. So your conscience condemns you. Or maybe you just don't feel like a good Christian. Sometimes the way that we preach and the way that we talk and pray with one another Others feel like they're a second-class Christian. Well, I could never pray like that. I just, no, just set all that aside and don't try to measure up to people. Try to measure up to Christ. But notice here that he is the one who is making intercession for us. He's going to God on our behalf because, verse 34, he's risen because he's alive. So Jesus Christ is very busy you think there's more than 50 Christians in Hollister? Do you think there's more than 50 Christians in California? Sure. He's got tens of thousands, millions, perhaps a billion. But since he's God, that's not a problem for him to be praying for us. 
So he ever lives to make intercession for us. And so this is what 1 John chapter 2 verse 1 is about. This is what Hebrews chapter uh, 7 verse 25, that he ever lives to make intercession for us. He's risen and he thrives on praying for you and me. See, this started in John chapter 17. The night before his crucifixion, he was in the garden and he was praying for you and me, for all of those that would believe uh, the gospel through the witness of the disciples. So here are some things that you can put in in your outline. I have someone who loves me and cares for me. I will cast my cares upon him. Peter put it this way, casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Have you ever felt like you're living life and you wonder where God is? Well, Jesus Christ is praying for you. He ever lives to pray for you. He cares for you. So cast all of your burdens, all of your heavy loads, and your cares upon you. Isn't Easter about hope, right? I mean, it seemed impossible when he took his last breath. And we read in Luke chapter 24, the devastating impact of his death upon the disciples. Two of them were walking to the little village of Emmaus, seven miles outside of Jerusalem, And they were long-faced and discouraged. And the resurrected Jesus comes up alongside them and starts walking down the road with them. And he says, what is this that you're talking about? And they're like, really? Are you the only one who's been in Jerusalem these last three days? And you don't know what's going on? How that we thought that Jesus Christ of Nazareth was Messiah, that he was going to redeem us? But how our leaders delivered over to death and he was crucified? And this is the third day? Since these things that he died. He's like, huh, wow. And so he begins to open the Old Testament scriptures to them, the things concerning himself. And as he's walking down the road with them and and opening the Bible, it's just like, yes, yes, yes. I get it, I get it, but where is he? And then he sits at a meal with them, and he asks the blessing as he breaks bread, and then their understanding is opened, and they're like, it's Jesus. And he vanishes out of their sight, but they know they've seen the living Jesus. They get up in the middle of the night, and they run seven miles. How many of you have ever run seven miles in your life? Jesus and his resurrection was important to them. They ran seven miles. Folks, they, they walked seven, they ran seven. They did over a half marathon that day. Jesus was important to them to tell the fact that they had seen the risen Lord. He's alive and he's interceding for believers. And so cast your cares upon him because they were hopeless, but it changed them from hopeless to filled with hope. Whatever your situation is, is it your health? Is it your employment? Is it your family? Are you discouraged by that? Well, the fact that Jesus Christ overcame death 
can change your perspective and give you hope. That he can change what you think is dead. He can resurrect it. Now let's move on. So, you know, not only is he praying for us, um, and this is our big idea, believe in him, identify with his church, serve others, thank him for praying for you, confess your sins, and anticipate your heavenly home when he comes. Now this next one about confessing your sins, he's advocating for us. Let's go over to the little letter of John, 1 John chapter 1, uh, chapter 2. So this is towards the end of your New Testament. There are three little books by the name of John back there. And we're going to find out that Jesus Christ is advocating for us. In other words, that's a defense attorney. Do you ever sin? If you're not a Christian, do you ever look at Christians and see their sins? Because they commit them. All right? Uh, I sin. And in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, it says, And my little children, so he's writing to Christians. They're very dear to him. These things I write unto you, that you sin not. I'm writing this because I don't want you to sin. And if any man sin, so if you sin, it says we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So beyond just interceding, he's advocating for you and for me. When we sin, when we do wrong, Now, as a parent, sometimes your kids sin, and they really give you as a parent a hard time. You didn't disown them. Neither does God disown us. As a matter of fact, he advocates for us. He claims us as his own. And so... He's advocating, he's defending us, he's defending us upon his merits. Now this comes from um, a website, Um, if you want to see the source I can do this, but a modern day legal advocate. What does an advocate do? Well, there's eight things that a legal advocate is responsible for. Number one, to represent you without discrimination. Your advocate must treat you with respect regardless of who you are. You know, Jesus Christ doesn't treat you differently because you're rich, you're handsome or beautiful, you're intelligent, or any other thing. You're a man, you're a woman, you're from a particular ethnic background. No, he represents you without discrimination. Number two, a legal advocate must inform you of your rights and see too that you understand what you're entitled to in the matter. And if you need further clarification on any subject that's not clear to you, he must give it to you upon request. You know what this book is? It's Jesus Christ giving to us the information that's contained in our birthright. We're set free from sin. How do you keep from sinning? How do you know what sin is? Well, it's all right in here. Number three, an advocate must protect your rights. That you have dignity 
that stays intact throughout the whole process. You know what? The devil comes to God and says, you know that child down there that you claim is one of yours? Well, let me tell you about them. You know what they did this week? I certainly watched them. I know what they did. And man, you should be embarrassed by it at your child and how they sinned this week. As a matter of fact, you should disown them. They're horrible. And the father says to the devil, you know, I actually don't see that person. I see my beloved son. I see their advocate. He shed his blood for their sins. So I know that it's all cleansed and taken care of. Okay? And so, does he protect our dignity? Yes, he does. We're called little or beloved children. If we sin, how does he protect our dignity? Well, he gives us an advocate. Jesus Christ, the righteous. So, he's not advocating your merits to the Father. Not trying to justify what you did. He's advocating his merits. He's the righteous one. Number four, to provide you with the legal necessary advice and assistance needed. As a client of an advocate, you have an important role to play here. You must provide your advocate with the information he needs to understand your case and be honest about it. Now, go back up to verses 8 and 9 of chapter 1 here. It's just a couple of verses ahead of you. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So just as that attorney-client communication has to be present in real life, like if the client really did do that, they need to let their advocate know so that the advocate is not caught off surprise Um, by surprise uh, during the trial and have to come back to the client and say, why didn't you tell me? Well, same thing with Jesus Christ. If we say, no, that's not a sin, I'm not doing that. Well, something's wrong because you're not communicating to your advocate. To communicate, then verse 9, if we confess our sins. That means he says the same thing about sin that God says about sin. In other words, we agree with him about our spiritual condition. And so here, it's a give and a take relationship. But we see that very clearly as what an advocate does. Um, Number five, respect your decisions. As a client, you have a right to decide what you want. Your advocate must respect that. He might advise you otherwise if he does not like that idea, But he has no right to go against your wishes if you decide uh, to stick to your own decision. Now, Jesus Christ is not a God of coercion or force. You make choices. And you live with the consequences of those choices that you make. But he doesn't force you to live your life to bring him glory. Number six, 
An advocate must challenge any unfair treatment directed to you. His role is to challenge any actions, comments, or judgments against you as deemed as unfair according to the law. You know what Jesus Christ does? When the accuser of the brethren comes before the Father, he defends us against his accusations. And he says, Dad, that's my child. That's covered by my blood. Father, I claim that one. And so here, Jesus Christ will stand up against the accusations, the slander of the devil. By the way, the devil does do that. Number seven, represent you to the end. Once an advocate takes your case, he must provide you with legal advice, support, and representation you need and must continue doing so until the end. He must see to it that the case is closed and mean being there for you uh, in case you wish to appeal. So he ever lives to make intercession for us. He's with us to the end. He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. It is God who worketh in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And lo, I am with you always until the end of the world. Jesus does not abandon his children. He's advocating for us. And number eight, provide quality services. This is what an earthly advocate has to do. So they have to respond to your communication requests, provide you with an interpreter if applicable, keep you updated on the process step by step, provide you with relevant documents where necessary, discuss every important decision with you, answer all your questions, ensure timely delivery of services, and inform you in case of any delays, and not ask for payment. Praise God, Jesus never says, you have to pay me for my advocacy. Jesus Christ provides you an interpreter in the Holy Spirit. When you don't even know how to pray for yourself, and you can't utter it and express it to God, all you can do is just groan, yeah, I did that again, God. What's wrong with me? Help me, God. Then the Holy Spirit is your interpreter. And so I think there's a really good correlation between what an earthly advocate does for us and what our heavenly advocate does for us. All right, let's move on. Number six, he's preparing our heavenly home for us. Let's go to John chapter 14, verses one through three. Now, not, this is not little John, but the gospel of John. So fourth book in the New Testament. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. What is Jesus doing today? He's preparing a place for us. I believe it's already done. Because when you come to the last book of the Bible, and you get to chapter 21 and chapter 22, and you read about that place. 
It's beautiful. You know, gold is so common that it's the pavement of heaven, the streets of gold. There's a beautiful river that flows from the throne of God. It's clear as crystal. There are 12 gates, each one made of one pearl. I think, man, God's got some pretty good-sized clams out there in the universe. Okay, uh, The foundation stones, beautiful description. It describes it as being 1,400 miles cubed. That's a big place. I think Jesus knows a little bit about engineering, don't you? Yeah. He can make a city that big. He's gone to prepare a place for us. Now, do you know what happened in 1066? Yeah, William the Conqueror. He came from France and invaded England. And with him, he brought 20,000 French words into the English language. We have one of those French words here in our King James Bible. It's called mansion. In French, it means an apartment dwelling. Sorry, you're not getting that heavenly mansion, all right? Uh, But in my father's house, you see, this is a Jewish custom. When a young man was married, he would build an addition onto his father's house. And then when it was done, he would go get his bride and bring her home. Well, let me tell you, Jesus Christ has finished his addition. The church is his bride. There's nothing that prevents him from coming to get us at any second. He's ready. And so we need to anticipate our heavenly home that he is building, or may I say that he has built for us. And so you have a hope in a future. Did I give you the outline blanks for your advocate? Number one, let me go back there and just give that to you. I have someone who loves me. That's interceding. Advocate. I have someone to represent me and forgive me of my sins. So these are the blanks under advocate. I have someone to represent and forgive me of my sins. So I will ask for forgiveness. I will ask for forgiveness. All right, let's move on. Uh, The blanks then for preparing a heavenly home. I have a hope and a future. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his abundant mercy, he hath begotten us again unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Um, I've shared this with you before, the difference between a Midwesterner and a Californian when it comes to weather. A Midwesterner says, I hope it's a good day. I hope the weather is going to be nice. And in California, we always like to rub it in. Uh, Winter, you know, is 65 and sunny. And back east, it's miserable. But our hope is this. We wake up and hope that it's 70 instead of 65, right? That's almost a given expectation. It's almost a right that the weather is going to be good in California. So what I'm trying to tell you is this. Our hope as a Christian is not, I hope this happens, but I know since Christ has promised, this is going to happen. As a 20-year-old young man, The reality of that hope came into my life on the evening of June 14th, 1988. In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before the world began. I received his gift of eternal life. You see, I was a religious person, 
I had grown up in a Christian school, even gotten the trophy for the best student of the year award, probably should have been retitled the best hypocrite of the year award, all right? Um, and I was very religious, but I wasn't saved. And at the age of 20, I came to receive his gift of eternal life because I realized it wasn't based upon my performance because I just wasn't good enough. I realized it was based upon his character, the integrity of who he is. God who cannot lie has made a promise that he will give eternal life. He made a promise. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare that place, I'm going to come again. And I want to take you to be with me. So I know that based upon his character, a proven track record, that his return is going to happen. And it's going to be very soon. So, the concluding blank there, will you work for him? This is what Jesus said, I must work the works of him that sent me, wild as day the night cometh when no man can work. You know what? You can earn rewards in heaven, but you have to do it now while you're alive. Can't do it later. You got to do it now. So get busy for God. And then number seven, and we'll close with this one. He is expecting his return. So please go with me to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 13, and just a couple of verses, and then we're done, folks. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 13. From henceforth, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. So what is he doing? Number seven, he's expecting to return. The Father has promised him a kingdom. Jesus will keep his promise. So let's go to the last book of the Bible and see his promise and how he's going to fulfill this. Revelation chapter 22, the last chapter in the Bible, last book of the Bible. Look with me at verses 19 and 20. And if any man shall take away the words of this book of the prophecy, God shall take his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. Verse 20. He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, Lord Jesus, come. Come quickly. Jesus Christ has promised that he is going to return. And so, will you look for his coming? It keeps you under his authority. So we've come full circle. It's kind of like this. As a parent, you give your kids instructions. We're going to the grocery store. When we get back, this is supposed to be done. You go through the lines, you do your shopping, you get the cart, and you pay, you load it up in the car, and you think, oh, that's going to be horrible. We're going to go home, and they haven't done it, and I'm going to have to do it. So, as a smart parent, you pick up your cell phone, and you make a call, and you say, Mom and Dad are on the way home. We expect it to be done when we get there, 
And by the way, we're now leaving the parking lot. See you in five. And you know what happens? And magically, what they were lamenting and bemoaning for three hours got all done in five minutes. All right? And so that anticipating their parents' sudden return, it motivated them. And so too, Christian, when you know that your heavenly father says, I'm sending my son quickly, it'll motivate you to clean up your life and to live with him. The Apostle John said it this way, the person who has this hope living within them, it purifies them, keeps them pure and accountable. So that's seven things. Now you know that Jesus Christ is doing because he's alive. He's not just sitting passively on the side, doing nothing. No, he's actively involved. Today, I know that he's been working in your heart and in your mind. And so now it's time to respond to how he's communicated with you. Some of you are convinced today of the truth of the gospel. That Jesus Christ died, he was buried, and rose again. And that you're a sinner in need of a Savior who died for you. And you'll call on that living Savior. A dead God wouldn't do you any good. But Jesus Christ isn't dead. He's living. And so he can save you today. And if you're convinced of that, and that's the work of God, that's not the work of pastor, that's the work of the Scripture, it's the work of the Spirit, then you'll be willing to pray and receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. And so then the big idea, uh, as we close it out, is this. Believe in Him, identify with His church, and serve others. Thank Him for praying for you, confess your sins, and anticipate your heavenly home at His coming. So let's go ahead and close this out by having a prayer, and this is where you worship Him. Uh, This is where you participate in the message by responding.